the History Emporium and Pals podcast in association with the historycorner.org podcasts, articles, reviews. Greetings. One must not get one's knickers in a twist. Right. I am I'm in my position now to be a, an attentive guest. Okay. To start with, I need to give you some context. So, I was born in one place, grew up in another, spent my teenage years in another, and then buggered off completely for ten years. So, the people I'm talking <laughs> about are from a few miles radius of where I was born. Okay. So Right, so we're going back to the beginning. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we find ourselves in Hertfordshire here. Um so if I was to mention Nebworth to you, what comes to your mind? The uh, big rock festivals. Yes. Yep. <laughs> that's exactly what, Yeah, that's exactly what I wanted you to say. Um and I was gonna say I won't judge you if you don't know anything, but you do, so this is amazing. Um <laughs> So, Nebworth uh, has become famous as a music venue in the late 20th century. So, hosting, like, the Rolling Stones, Queen, Oasis, and uh, Robbie Williams. It's the Oasis one I was thinking of, definitely. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a, it was a huge music venue um, in the late 20th century. Um, it's kind of died down a bit now. Um, they're not using it as much. Um, I think with the opening of the O2 Arena in London it's easier for people to get to so and you've got your Hyde Park easier set up as well I could imagine yeah Mm -hmm. absolutely so it's kind of died a death but um I want to take you back to a time before rock and roll um and I want to talk to you about I know there was a time there was a time before rock and roll so I want to talk to you about the Lytton family I've already said that Nebworth is in North Hertfordshire and uh, North Hertfordshire, or Hertfordshire in general, was once a um, uh, a hunting ground for monarchs of yesteryear. So, the Hertfordshire um, logo is a um, is a heart is a is a deer, a stag, um, and it's basically come comes from when it was said hunting ground. So you'd get all these lodges and stuff that were sort of dotted around the country, and Nebworth House was one of them. So. It uh, has been the home of the Lytton family since 1490. That's 1490. So it's been there quite a while. Just to check, when you say it's royal hunting grounds, were were the other noble families allowed to hunt, or was it specifically, no, 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 you manage this for whenever the king wants to turn up? So because, obviously, um, the, the land outside of London... Uh, was Hertfordshire, so Hertfordshire is one of the home counties, then the the king, like any part of the country, could kind of turn up whenever he, whenever he wanted to um, and uh, sort of come and stay for a while. But, yeah, I mean, people were allowed to live here, but it was predominantly for the royals um, and nobility. So the nobility, so the Lytton's, were part of that nobility, so they were. 
So it's, it was a playground for the rich and famous. Yeah, basically, That's and awesome. yeah, I mean, it, it kind of still is if you you're sort of looking for um, uh, sort of countryside just outside of London. It's it's uh, it's that it's a home for a lot of uh, footballers, a lot of famous people. You've got a lot of um, uh, so you've got the massive Harry Potter studios in Hertfordshire. You've got the Warner Brothers next door. Um, so yeah, it's still kind of that elite, um, not nobility. I, I love but... I love the idea of a movable court um, because we've we've kind of moved away from that now. But the idea that any noble at any time could just have the king and his entire retinue turn up and go, yeah, we're staying and you're paying the bill for us. Yeah, yeah, and people and used been, you know people used to end up bankrupt because of that. So. Um, You'd, I don't know, you'd get a letter from, I don't know, let's say Henry VIII, saying, I'm going to come and stay at your family home on this date. And they, they give you, like I don't know, a couple of months to sort of get everything in order. Or or maybe if they're kinder, they, 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 get a, they give a year. Um, so you plough all this money in, into it and you, you, um, uh, you borrow money left, right and centre. Uh, and then the king doesn't even show up. And it was really common. <laughs> it was really common for that to happen. See, eh? It would I, ruin people. I thought it would be sort of like just hoping that you, you managed to pull a frugal monarch. Like, you know, oh, well, we, we hosted the king 50 years ago. We're fine. And then other people were like, oh, God, you know, no kings have been to us for a while. And it's it blooming Charles II. I really don't want Charles II to turn up. <sighs> just that, that idea of the how your world could be turned upside down just on the whim yeah. of the and, king. And your family would be expected to, as you said, foot the bill or to mm. sort of leave the premises for... And it could be for a long period of time as well. So say if um, said king or queen wanted to come and, I don't know, hunt for the summer, bugger off. We're living here now. We are the we are the royal family, um, but you're paying the bill. But you've got to go and live somewhere else. See, now I've got the idea that there's some noble family near Balmoral who are still waiting for the royals to give it back. It's been a couple of hundred years now, and they're just please, go yeah, on. yeah, potentially, potentially. Um, I don't know. If, I think Balmoral is really ugly. Now, I'm really sorry to people who love that building, but I don't think it's very pretty. It's not the prettiest of all the sort of royal residences and castles, but I don't think you'd... It's more about the location rather than the look of the thing. Yeah. I mean, it was remodelled... Especially for... Sorry, I was just going to say that it was remodelled uh, for Queen Victoria f uh, by Albert. So it was just, again, it was just like a tiny little... I say tiny. It was a uh, a hunting lodge that wasn't that tiny, but then they just made it a lot bigger. So... Um, oh, bless him. So it was a private getaway. I mean, it, it would have been to their tastes, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, definitely, when, definitely. When you're empress of most of the known world, you know, something like Balmoral is literally a trinket, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, 
uh, Nebworth House, again, was originally a brick, sort of small farmhouse, essentially. Um, I don't know if you've seen what it looks like now, but it's very ornate, so it's got um, a facade of stonework, and there's all these gargoyles hanging over it. It's very um, stylized. Um, uh, so they, they call it the, the Tudor Gothic style. Um, I, you need to look at it. It's really hard to explain, but it's, um, it's very ornate and it's very, um, it's quite spooky actually. Um, all these statues of these lions holding, um, like spears and pitchforks and stuff. It's, it's all very bizarre. So is, it, is this when, when we rediscovered sort of like the romantic periods and the Hellenistic periods and we were sort of mimicking Roman and, and Grecian sort of styles and, it all got thrown together in a hodgepodge kind of time. Yeah, pretty much. And I think it's like a lot of British country houses are a mismatch of um, styles from A, all different periods, and B, all different um, uh, countries as well. So this is where you get these sort of really unique buildings. Some really work and some not so much. Um, I would say Nebworth actually works. It it looks really good. Um, the important thing is to just have the the style together because this would have been the time I'm guessing when people were go- still going on the grand European tours to sort of complete their classical education. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's basically is the person who's bringing that vision back able to be a, an architect, able to be a designer, or are they someone who's just gonna throw absolutely everything they saw at the wall and see what sticks? Yeah, well, uh, uh, the saying is as old as time, isn't it? You can't buy taste. So either you've got it (laughs) or you haven't. So um, you get some people that have got lots of money and they they can stylize something and it looks beautiful. And then you've got other people and it's a bit of a, a shambles. You kind of, yeah, got this, that and the other put together. But... Happily, Nebworth is is well put together. It's very strange. I um I suggest everyone goes and looks at the the photo. In fact, I'll post a photo on um social media. It's very stylized and it's been in loads and loads of films. It's been in Batman. It's been in loads of um different films. Oh so you yeah, you'll probably recognize say, is this it. Wayne Manor. Yeah, yeah, you'll probably oh. recognize it. Um, I'm I'm looking at it now. This is yeah. I love mini turrets. Mm, yeah. Oh. Um, so a lot of people will recognise it from films. It's been in um, uh, loads of uh, period dramas as well. Um, yeah. I think because of the ease to get there from London, a lot of film studios in London and stuff. So it's it's. Yeah, it's literally next to the A1, so the Great North Road. It's like there, and you turn off, and you're you're there pretty much. So right at the house. Mm, yeah, essentially. So it's only half the size. Oh. Well, it's not even half the size. It's so so. What you see now is one wing of what would have been like a four-winged house. So it would have been four wings of that plus a middle section. So it was a lot bigger than it is today. 
Um, but yeah, if anyone's in the area, yeah. I suggest they go and look at it. It's 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 very nice. It is it is huge. I cannot imagine four times that size. Mm. And a lot of country houses that you see to this day are only half the size that they used to be. Mm. Um, because after the well, war, it's the cost of the upkeep, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. After the war, obviously they were repurposed. Well, sort of during the war, they were repurposed a lot of them um, as military hospitals, and then they sort of fell into decline because no one went back to service, and and these grand families were taxed heavily um, because they had to pay for a war. So a lot of these buildings sort of fell into disrepair, and there was a whole lifestyle like change. Um, and this is this is where it's very difficult. In that both, on one side, very happy that the ultra-wealthy weren't able to continue to just sort of, like, live off the entire community, which mm-hmm. was essentially what they were doing. Yeah. You know, the, the country house was the centre of the community and everybody had taxed that or were uh, expected to pay some something towards that upkeep. And then the sadness around the, the fact that those houses have fallen into disrepair because they are amazing buildings and they everyone are. around the country has one. In Wigan, Hay Hall is, is one, again, used mm. as a music venue. Um, but every single sort of county has a couple of these buildings that are just... They need to be preserved just for what they represent, regardless of whether the landed gentry are still living there. They are amazing sort of portals into the way that privilege used to work and the way that the country used to run essentially because these were the places where deals got done Mm. yeah and not even that long ago in the grand scheme of things these houses were still up and running and a lot of them i mean kind of had their final days in the 50s and 60s just after the war and a lot of them were given to um like the national trust or english heritage mm. or other independent um uh, sort of uh, organizations but that's not that long ago if you really think about it in the grand scheme of things so so a, a massive lifestyle change um from from having these massive country homes to to sort of the smaller houses that we live in now mm. um but yeah, I'm, I mean, I wasn't here to talk about the, the style of the house and stuff, but yes, it is beautiful. <laughs> I'm going to talk about some of the uh, people that lived in the house. So, oh, um, that would be good. Yeah. yeah. So let's the, do that. Let's do that. We're on it. So the Lytton family um, have lived on this property since 1490, as I said earlier. Um, and they still live there today. So... The Lytton family uh, still live in a section of uh, Nebworth House. Um, it's open to the public in the summer. Um, but yeah, the the rest of the year it's theirs. Um, which is nice in a way that it's still still there. but um, Or they're still there, sorry. Um, but when I was doing some research, so I was really enthusiastic about doing some research about the Lytton family because um, we've got a lot of streets named after them, a lot of pubs named after them. Um, and then I started reading about them and I was became a bit disgruntled, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> um, 
I thought they were these uh, amazing people that brought lots of um, uh, wealth and fame and, and everything to the area. But mm, actually, I don't really like them. I'm just putting that out there now. So I'm sorry We've if got... anyone's listening who loves the Littons. But yeah, I'm not a fan. <laughs> so... it's, it's half a millennium. It's over half a millennium of a family. You're going to get one or two bad apples. Yeah. So in the... I'm worried you're going to tell me the mainly bad apples, but... Yeah, so I'm going to concentrate on three, <laughs> three people here. So okay. uh, I'm going to... Um, I'm going to start with, I guess, probably the most famous resident uh, of Nebworth. And this is most famous at the time because the Littons have kind of been forgotten, even though at their time they were very famous Um and very well established. So Edward Bueller Lytton um, was a Victorian author. He was a dramatist and a statesman. Um, he served as a Whig member of Parliament. Now, do you know what a Whig is? Not something you put on your head. The the Whigs were the, they were a party. They were were they the liberal version of a party? Yes. I know that the Whigs and the Tories were there, and then the Whigs went, and the Liberals and the Labour Party came later. Yeah. So the Whigs are so essentially uh, the Liberal Democrats today. That's what they merged into. Um, the, the yeah. So it was like a like it is now, like a two a two um, pronged uh, a two party system. Yeah. It's the, it's the curse of first past the post, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. So whereas now we've got Labour and the Conservatives, back then it was the Whigs and the Conservatives. Now it's Whigs spelt W H I G, not Whig as in I'm going to wear a two pair wig. You put it on your hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, he he was a Whig member of Parliament, but he um, he he joined the dark side. So he went over to the Conservative Party. Um, and he was a member of parliament for um, the Hertfordshire region as a Whig candidate and as a Conservative candidate as well. So now, he he was on both sides. It's, it, it's something that's more interesting to me is that back the further back in history you go, the more people were willing to change sides in terms of their parliamentary allegiances. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually think it's quite a good thing people were able to go, well, actually... There's not this blind sort of act that you make with a party where if they sort of drift beyond what you're willing to accept. Because I'm assuming he was more towards the conservative wing of the Whig party. Yeah, yeah. yeah and as the right. Whigs went more left wing, he was like, mm, actually, yeah. I've, I've got less in common with you now than I have with the conservatives. And also back in the day, it was pretty much the landed gentry who were making up parliament as well so he didn't have to worry about things like elections so he could pretty much declare for whoever he wanted couldn't he no we've got to remember this is still um where any certain members of the public could vote as well so it yeah. was it was all very corrupt um corrupt maybe not it the right a... word but it's it wasn't fair um Nebworth wasn't a, a rotten borough, though, was it? No, no, not at all. Not yeah. at all. Nebworth is... Um, uh, it's a 
town it sits on its own um it still kind of sits on its own you've got the new town of stevenage <laughs> that kind of like engulfs it now but i mean that wasn't there back in the day but old stevenage was there so but he'd still have to convince a few voters that they needed to go along with him keep him honest yeah i guess so i oh, guess good. so um but he was the he was from the manor house like of course you listen to what he was going to say like he had money therefore he had knowledge so that was kind of the um he done well yeah exactly yeah. exactly um doesn't matter that he was born into it but um hey ho there you go yeah he'd had the common sense to be born into it that's yeah. forward planning mm. yeah <laughs> this is it so he um he was also secretary of state for the colonies so this is sort of where it starts to take a bit of a dark turn. <laughs> um, quite quite early on. Um, so the the colonies of the empire was a big uh, a big thing. Um, it was building up from the East India Company, and he basically had a hand in um, the colonies and and kind of what happened with them, and he oversaw basically the disruption of a lot of the world in Britain's favour <laughs> supposedly so yeah so there was there was there was one secretary for all of the colonies uh I, or did he just have oversight over all of the junior ministers for like India and the Caribbean and yeah so there would have been like more than one person but he was like the overseer he so was he the was, kingpin. He yeah. Was, oh. So he was the secretary. That's a, that's a lot of pressure for the man. Yeah, but he is not a very nice person, and you'll find this out later on. So he probably had no yeah. sleepless nights over this at all. Um, so he was also a writer. Um, mm. Writing sort of ran in their family. He was a published author as well. Um, and that you you'll see that run down his family as we go on but um he married a writer Rosina Bueller Lytton um mm. uh she was actually born a Lytton and he kind of married into the Lytton so he was Edward uh, Bueller oh, he was by marriage yeah so he was Edward Bueller and she was she was a Lytton but because she was a woman and it was the Victorian times when a gentleman married their wife, they um, became part of their so so everything that she owned became his essentially. Um, yeah. I'd like to say that that made her extra cautious about who she was marrying, but I'm assuming it was her dad who would be given the final nod. Yeah, it would have been. He was going to be taking all of his power. Yeah, it would have been, um, and because he was quite well. Um, uh, well known in high society and he was a um he was a member of parliament and secretary of state mm. that it seemed like a good marriage so the marriage did produce children produced two children um but it broke down quite early on so this is where edward becomes a bit of a knob to be honest um <laughs> So it broke right. down, and he basically falsely accused his wife of being insane. And because he was a man... Um, yeah, it, you could definitely get her committed. Yeah. 
Um, no, he yeah, did. He did. So she was, um, she was uh, detained in an insane asylum. Um, however, however, the public, because she was a, she was quite a famous author herself. The public was so outraged by what he had done that it was one of the first cases of um, sort of massive public opinion um, of her actually being taken out of the asylum. So normally when a, a, a gentleman like committed their wife into an asylum, that was it, done. But because of this out, outcry, um, it kind of, it, it shamed him a little bit. So she was brought out of this asylum and um she th- th- i mean they never got back together um he kind of lived her life uh, sorry he kind of lived his life and she lived her life um and she became actually really successful on her own um by writing children's poetry and literature um etc so she well, kind am of I, am i right in thinking that what had to happen was the public convinced him to have her taken that he still had to it agree to to have her taken out of the asylum it yeah. wasn't like the decision was taken outside of his control i think because it was detrimental to his career because it was there was such an uh, outcry it was better to have an estranged wife who was just quietly doing things on the side rather than all of this noise about being in an asylum because yeah. it was it was one of the great scandals of the victorian time that there were so many private asylums and they would literally commit people on the say-so of any male relative. Yeah. Yeah. It's... I mean, I'm so glad that she did She did get out and she lived, like, quite a long, successful life without him. Um, but he kept her away from the children. He wouldn't allow her to see them. Um, oh, yeah, because it, it used to be males had control over the children, didn't it? Yeah. It just sound like a nasty, nasty oh. bit of work. Um, so he basically just gave in as much as he needed to to avoid the scandal, so he could continue to to enjoy his his wealth and privilege mm-hmm. that he got from her. I mean, yeah, I, I yeah. assume the Buellers were pretty well off, but not as much as the Littons. No, absolutely, yeah, nail on the head there. So, <laughs> I mean, after he sort of left Parliament, he he. He continued to write himself. So he actually coined a few phrases that we all use and we all know. So um, the phrase, the great unwashed, was one of his. Um, the uh, the pen is mightier than the sword. That was him as well. Um, He's claiming that? Yeah. yeah. I can never use that again. Now. I know. The dweller on the threshold, that was him. Um, and probably most famously, um, when a lot of books start out like this, but he, he wrote a lot of his books, um, that started with, uh, it was a dark and stormy night. That was kind of his opening thing. And we all know that we've all read books that say that. So that was him as well. Oh no, I thought it was the Albergs who wrote literally, it was a dark and stormy night. Mm, that's not oh, what my, no. yeah, I know. Sorry, oh. you can't use any of these phrases anymore. <laughs> I, I can't because he's he's a reprehensible human being. But oh, I mean, yeah. I would never use the great unwashed. 
But the others, the others, I'm really sad about. Sorry, to ruin your it's, evening. It's okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So. Strangely, and we don't know if it's because of what he was like as a person, but his sort of work... I mean, he was on the same level as Dickens at his time. So we don't really know why his work has declined so much. And I don't know if it's because he was just such a nasty person. Um, however, I mean, the the Littons and, and Dickens were, were very close. They were They were sort of in the same circles. Um, but I mean Dickens wasn't very nice either to his wife I saw a programme about this quite recently as well so it seemed to be a theme that was going on in these circles people were not very nice to the people that they married which was a bit rubbish well, it, it was a time when you married for position rather than love I mean yeah, I, I get the idea that you'd marry and you'd, you'd hope that you got along but if you didn't you'd already got the benefit from it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. especially from the male point of view, you had so much control over the wife that it was a zero-sum game. You, Even if you hated her, you could you could commit her to an asylum if that's what you wanted to do. Yeah, it was so uh, one-sided, wasn't it? Like All of it was so one-sided. Um, we're going to move on to his son now. So his son was called Robert. Um and he, uh, again, was an English statesman and he was a conservative politician. So by this time, the Whigs had kind of fallen out of fashion and it was all about conservative uh, politics. Um, I cannot imagine a guy who had a country house and lots of wealth would be a conservative. Well, I know. Carry on. I know. <laughs> who knew? Who knew, eh? So, so Robert... Um, served as Viceroy of India. Okay, so we That's are a plum job. Yeah, so he uh, we're basically in the the midst of uh, British Indian rule. So when I say rule, uh, the, the Brits kind of went over and were like, "Yeah, we're having this deal with it." Is is this <laughs> so... the Raj though? Are we in the Raj period where it was the Crown, or are we before that when it was the uh, no? So East we're in India Company. We're no, we're in the Crown era. So we this is quite late on in Queen Victoria's reign. So this is eighteen seventy six to eighteen eighty that he was Viceroy of India. So um, Queen Victoria was Empress of India at this time. Mm. Um, so he was Viceroy of India and he was also British ambassador to France. So those it, seem like two chops that shouldn't go together. Mm, they do. They Just do. geographically, aside yeah. from anything else. But Yeah, absolutely. But okay. um that's what he did. Um he <laughs> he uh most famous famously um was overseeing uh, the Viceroy of India when he, uh, when the Great Famine kind of struck. Oh, in in Bengal. It was, yeah. So the Great oh, Famine, if, if, if no one knows, is, there was obviously a famine, there was a drought, and um, a lot of people died from malnutrition. Um, and it was seen as a failure, uh, on the British government's uh, 
sort of shoulders. Um, things could have been done about it. Uh, food could have been brought in, um, but it wasn't um, because it was easier to have these people that were potentially going to rise up against the British die yeah. than have them live. So actually they saw it as it wasn't a bad thing, which is awful. Yeah. The amazing thing about that is Bengal had been the the richest part of India mm. up until a few years before and actually had resisted any kind of English influence. It yeah. had only been the fact that the the um you know the a lot of things had happened outside of the influence of the people who were living there and suddenly they became a third world country overnight. It it was the most depressing thing that we did to so many regions of India is we took and we sort of took away all of their wealth and we redistributed it in England and suddenly these these states that have been able to subsist quite happily had been reduced to the the point of petri just because yeah. we'd absolutely taken every single natural resource they had and we'd done it in the name of you know civilizing them mm. yeah and that was it i think there was this image of um uh europeans especially um going over and to people of color especially to native countries uh sort of trying to um, convert them to our way of living, our cleanliness, our civilization, and actually they were doing quite fine without us. Mm. They didn't. They didn't need liberating. <laughs> they were doing okay. Um, I've just got some photos in front of me now of uh, children um, who are obviously suffering from the famine, and it's you can see their bones. It's it's awful. It's absolutely awful. Mm. Um, and the irony of it will be exactly the same as the Irish famine. Actually, there was enough food. It's just that we were exporting it to England at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're uh, obviously the rice, and, yeah, rice and grain was kind of the main sort of commodity that came out of uh, India, um, as well as other things, sort of fruits, veg, all that kind of stuff. And yeah, it was being sent to us. <laughs> I say us. I wasn't there, but um, yeah, it was it was sent to to places where it didn't necessarily need to be. It was it was being sent to the people that were suffering from gout, that were obviously eating too much, not these people that were <laughs> like dying of starvation. So yeah, we've yeah. got um, we've got Mister Robert uh, Lytton to thank for the overseeing of that. Um, Bless him. I know. I, I don't know how much he could say about it. I mean, I'd, I want to give Rob the benefit of the doubt and say, I I assume even in that position as Viceroy of India of India at the time, you trying to go against a national policy of we're just going to continue to take from the colonies until there's nothing left to take would have would have been a hard thing to do as one person. Yeah, and as I I say this quite a lot on the podcast that hindsight is a beautiful thing. So we oh, can yeah. look, we can look back at things with our twenty first century eyes and say, oh no, well I wouldn't do that, or I would do that differently. 
but would you? <laughs> That's the thing. I I um sort of ta- this is one of my many tangents. I'm sure I'll have, but um. Uh, let's take war for example so you think a lot of people in germany at the time of the outbreak of of the war um we sit here now with our 21st century eyes saying oh well well, we we wouldn't do that we would fight against that and we would we would uh Mm. we know that that's wrong but if your life was in danger and your family's lives were in danger if you didn't conform what would you do? Do you know what I mean? Like you probably yeah. would conform. Um, and also the the idea that your country has been chosen and that you are just by being born where you were makes you inherently better than anyone else in the world. Mm-hmm. It's a very tempting lie to buy into yeah. that I am special just by dint of my birth and I should have dominion over everyone else in the world. Yeah, because I just so happen to be born in a certain place. It's it's a very tempting lie to buy into. Yeah, and it's it's an easy lie to buy into as well. Um, especially if the the the, the propaganda is done correctly, then mm. of course you're gonna go with it. Um, so Mr. Robert Lytton was also the overseer of the second anglo-afghan war so we 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 see um yeah yeah. so the afghan war was basically a military conflict that was fought between the british raj and the empire um sorry the emirate state of afghanistan um Mm. uh, we see the middle east as quite a modern um a, a battleground but it's been going on for quite a while um and we can sort of sim it back to to the to again the overseeing of of what our robert did um and i say what he did he wasn't there but he was one of the people that was <laughs> um in politics at the time that um uh, sort of made the narrative of the outcome the 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 votes and stuff of of where they went and why they went there so um the the irony of the entire thing about the afghans is we had the punjab who were their own sort of entity mm-hmm. and they had successfully driven the afghans back into afghanistan and they were this lovely buffer but we couldn't help because the the you know they had so much wealth to take over the Punjab. And as soon as we did that, suddenly we were the buffer between Afghanistan and the rest of India. And suddenly it was our problem. Mm-hmm. And you just, you feel like if we just left the Punjab to do their own thing, Afghanistan would never have been a problem to the Shiraj. We all we, know. We had to have that plum. Mm. We all know that the British can't, not have things their way <laughs> it seems to be a running theme um uh you look at this the the sort of the creation of pakistan for example in india um even like creating that border that was a british thing um uh in israel and palestine the land that was given to the israelis was a british idea um 
And then we sort of say like, oh, well, it's not our problem. Bye. <laughs> Have fun. That, that, is pre- that is pretty much the British way. We've taken everything we needed. Uh, sort it out. Yeah. Off you go. And we've still got these rivalries and these conflicts happening today. And, and we can we can relate that back to the British and what they did. Um, I mean, that's, that's, that's the way of telling if you're left wing or right wing, basically, in England today. Are you on the side of the Palestinians or the Israelis? It's a, it's a really nice way of telling whether you're left wing or, or right wing. Yeah. And I, I know I'm on the side of the Palestinians because they're essentially kept in two massive prison camps. I'm so glad that you said that because I, was, I, I wonder where that was going then for a second. Yes, I am also on said side um, of the Palestinians. Then, you know, yeah. My dad went over to Palestine okay. um, and accidentally smuggled money into Yasser Arafat. He went in as part of a, a medical kind of um, contingent who were going to give some uh, information, some skills, you know, do some training for the Palestinian doctors. Mm. And apparently a lot of um, militants came into the hotel room and the person that he'd gone across with happened to have a load of money that was just taken. That's amazing. So he indirectly was was complicit in uh, funding the Palestinian effort. Well, they have been yeah. hard done by. But it's, it's the so. same with, with the order that we drew because we wanted to get the hell out of the entire situation because we didn't have the money to run the Raj anymore. Mm-hmm. It's like, right, here, everyone who's Muslim on one side, everyone who's Hindu on the other side, ignore the fact that you've been living there for generations mm-hmm. or, you know, that you have community ties. Just sort it out. Yeah. We'll in it a week. And it's Go still, on, guys. yeah, and it's still going on to this very day. Um, mm. Yeah, absolutely crazy um but yeah our robert was part of all of this uh yeah there's there was lots of death and lots of fighting <laughs> that's 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 as far as my knowledge goes on the war in in afghanistan um but yeah mr mr Lytton was involved in that um it, and it's it's really kind of it, it's so insidious the idea that you can make decisions in this position from a place of complete protection you're not safety there. yeah yeah you're just making decisions about what other people are going to do on your behalf and i can see how how that insulation from the actual reality would be enough to make you able to just see them as like characters on civ if you're playing Civilization, you know, they're not really connected to you because you never actually have to go out there yeah, and see firsthand what your decisions make. So, I mean, I'm really wanting to give the Littons the benefit of the doubt. And with Rob, I want to say, well, he was born into it. He, you know, he was given these roles and it's almost like a computer game for him. He never has to see the consequences of the decisions he makes. He just says, oh, we should do this in that place that I'm never going to see on the other side of the world. And then he just reads the newspaper reports to see if he made a good 
you know, good decision or not. Yeah. And it is easy to, to make them decisions if you are disconnected from it, mm. like you say. Oh. Absolutely. Um, he he was in office. He wasn't in office for that long, actually. So he was in office from 1887 to 1891. So he actually got quite a lot under his belt, considering he wasn't there that long. Hey, he was there as long as President Trump. So... Mm. That's, that's more than enough time to enact change. True, and we all know what happened there, don't we? <laughs> um, he had seven children. How he managed to have seven children. Um, well, obviously we know how children are created. <laughs> so, Were they all with his wife? Uh, yes, so his wife oh. was um, uh, Edith. Um, and she became the Countess of Lytton. Um mm. And she was, uh, surprise, surprise, she was a British aristocrat. Um, no. I know. Keep it in the family. <laughs> um, so, and she attended court with Queen Victoria. So it was all very nicely linked between politics and royalty. Um, yeah. Well, this is the thing. I mean, nowadays we we like to think there's there's three branches. You've got the royal family, you've got, you know, parliament, and you've got the courts. But even going back a hundred years, they were so intertwined. Yeah. Then you would have you know a, a member of the aristocracy who would go to court, who would also be given you know a government position because they'd be an MP because they owned a house, and. Members of the same family would be members of the clergy high mm. up and would also be members of the court system. Yeah. The so, idea of the separation. So riddle me this, and this is something that's always puzzled me. So obviously um, uh, government has a cabinet, doesn't it? So mm. um, you could be um, education secretary or transport secretary. Um, but these yep. positions, they change. So... So one month I could be the education secretary with no real sort of insight to education. education. And then I could move to transport with no transport. Like, so how, like, what makes me qualified to do said jobs? I don't understand how you can be a specialist in one area and then jump to a completely different area within months of being in the said area before. It's the joy of the civil service. Mm. I've watched enough Yes Minister to say (laughs) you rely on the civil service. But it is one of the questions about the way the government works that basically everybody wants to get to those top four positions. They want to either be foreign secretary, home secretary, treasury, or they want to be the prime minister. And those Mm. are considered the plum jobs. And everything else is a stopgap. Sort of working while you your way up. Get there. Yeah. So, essentially, you can ignore the actual job because it's just part of your ladder to yeah. get up to those plum positions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Robert had a... Well, he had seven daughters, but one of the most famous, famously... Um, which he probably, I mean, there's no written record of this, but he probably disproved of massively. She was an uh, uh, one of the sort of leading uh, suffragettes um, 
sort of when it came round to um, the time that women were fighting for the equal equal rights to vote and and actually coming from a family that were very much um, would send their wives off to the asylum and would <laughs> um, sort of control Risky the business. Yeah, is what you're saying. yeah, absolutely. And um, so Constance was her name. She. Um, yeah, she was she was up there with the um, uh, with the like the Emily the Davidsons, the yeah. Pankers. Yeah, she was up there with all of them, um, and she uh, yeah she was she was a an activist campaigning for votes for women. So um, I kind of feel like that is a little like sort of two fingers up to her sort of predecessors that were probably very controlling towards women and part of the problem. And actually she was like, well, no, <laughs> I'm not standing for this anymore. <laughs> like, I'd like to have a say in my life. I don't just want to be married away for profit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing about the suffragettes that, that gets me is that they actually wanted qualified votes for women. A lot of them they wanted the upper class women to have a vote not yeah, all yeah. women and you know the pankhurst were the they, they were the worst offenders mm -hmm. in terms of that they were like yes we want women of a certain standing to have well a vote. The, the pankhurst actually fell out didn't they so there was three of them there was the mum and the two daughters and i can't there remember three daughters three daughters mm. yes and they um, sent the most militant one away to australia bless her there was one of them that very much disagreed with the... She wanted everyone to have it. And they broke, like the whole family sort of broke in two because she was very much like, well, no, everyone needs to have the vote. And the other two were like, well, no, it's just the upper class women, like you were saying. Um, I can't remember which one's which, though. Um, but yeah, I, I know what you're saying. They were saying that the upper class women... So there was still that class divide there. But again, can you? it's like you say, when you look at it through the lens of that time, it's like, well, if they'd have gone ahead and asked and said, every woman needs a vote, it would have been even more absurd than the idea of some women should have a vote. So mm. I understand where they were going with the idea of let's win a battle that maybe we can win. And then we'll we'll push forward from there. We'll, we'll create a shed with, you know, upper class women who have a certain amount of, you know, educate classical education and they know Latin. Yeah. They can vote and then we can start to disseminate it. I, I kind of get the point. Yeah. Yeah, that, absolutely. It was sort of slow and you know, steady wins the race. Yeah. Um, it's the idea. I don't know if you ever come across the Overton window, the idea in American politics of what you need to do is there's, there's a certain area that is considered okay for debate and the goal of any political movement is to move that window. So at one point, the idea of, um, you know, uh, same-sex adoption was considered completely abhorrent. You couldn't do that. And slowly, 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 they moved that window over towards the left and suddenly it was, well, of course... As long as you've got two loving parents, you're fine. And that what the suffragettes were doing, especially the 
the Pankhurst, it wasn't that they were trying to get everyone the vote. They were just trying to move that window over to being more liberal yeah. in the hope that the next generation would move it further across. Yeah. And eventually you get universal suffrage, which, you know, we, we have. Mm. So, Which actually came quite late on in comparison to the rest of Europe. Just going to throw that mm. out there. Um, <laughs> so uh, We got there in the end. We did get That's there in the, the end. Uh, so Constance uh, would sometimes go by the name as, uh, of, of Jane Wharton because obviously Constance Georgina Lytton or Lady Constance Georgina Britton, uh, Lytton is is quite a posh name. She wanted to be seen as like one of the people. Um, so although she was born uh, and raised in privilege, she kind of rejected that background and she joined the women's social and political union so they were the most uh, militant group of the suffragettes so what we forget about the suffragettes as well is actually they were if they were around now they would be classed as terrorists <laughs> they blew up oh, things yeah. they um attacked people on the streets they would vandalize things um <clears throat> they were militant they weren't messing around um the there's actually a place near where we live called Rivington Pike. And if you climb up it, there's just this area where there's a sort of checkerboard black and white marble floor. Mm. And it used to be a country home. And there was a suffragette who turned up and just burnt the house to the ground. They, like you do. <laughs> they re yeah, they really were like explosives. Let's do that. Yeah, that'll, that'll get people to listen to us if we mm -hmm. blow things up. The thing is that it kind of did for a while until the war started. Mm -hmm. um, but our our Constance, she was um, she was imprisoned uh, four times, um, and she would go under uh, under the force feeding. So so they would go on hunger strike, oh. and you get these images of the force feeding. Um, which is horrendous. Big tube. Big yeah. tube down someone's throat and like sort of like a, a, a funnel at the end of it. And they would pour sort of like a gruel down the end of it. Um, so, yeah, it was disgusting. You, you got like, an award for that, though. And they would give you an award and you got to plant a tree if you've been on hunger strike, mm. I believe. So I mean, Yeah, I don't it, know the ins and outs of... of, of um, sort of suffragettes actually it's quite a interesting topic something that i might look on further down the line it was one of those i think they needed to to give them an idea that you know they valued the fact that they were going through these extremities because a lot of these women were upper class they didn't need to do it you no know, it, no it was it was so ideological it's amazing that they got the backing that they did because this was you know, the majority of the upper class women were leading the charge. And to be honest, they were already living a life of privilege. They mm -hmm. didn't need to do that no. in order to make their lives better. They, it, it did seem to be actually selfless mm -hmm. in a way. Yeah, absolutely. So um, she uh, published a book um, called Prisons and Prisoners, which was all about her time in... Um, Holloway prison um, oh. and she quite famously at the time um, 
uh, kind of used a bit of broken enab- uh, enamel or, or possibly a hairpin to carve the letter V uh, over a heart for victory and for votes for women. Um, mm. And it was seen as quite racy because it was like over her breast, over her heart. Um, so she was really putting herself out there. You've got to remember that her, her dad was in the House of Lords. So, yeah, Robert was her dad. So I, t- I totally assumed he'd be in the House of Commons, but of course he'd be in the House of Lords. Yeah. So And he'd hold a government position. Yeah. So she's doing all of this, probably embarrassing the hell out of him. Um but I like her. Good. She yeah, we yeah. like we like Lady Constance. Um I say we, I'm speaking for both of us now. <laughs> um As long as you t- you don't tell me she settled down, married a guy, pumped out six kids and Ended up a good conservative. No. So, she remained unmarried. Yes. <laughs> um, because, um, yeah, her, she basically would... She, she didn't want to marry in her status because she didn't believe in class or status. So, she said if she wanted to marry, she'd marry someone lower. And uh, her mum and dad wouldn't permit it. So, she ended up staying unmarried for the rest of her life. Um so essentially, I will only marry for love. Well, then you won't get married. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I mean, it ends quite sadly Lesser. for her. Oh, no, I want Constance to have a good ending. Mm, yeah, she died quite early. Um, oh. She was only 54. Um, and so she had a heart attack. Uh, and they think it Jeez. was attributed to all of the times that she had had trauma through the hunger strike and forced feeding. Um, so her body had taken such a strain, a such a stress. Yeah. Bless that her. actually she, she died quite young. So yeah, people, more people should know about Lady Constance. I'm going to make it my mission now to, uh, to spread the word of her. <laughs> um, well, I'm doing the same thing with uh, Sophia Dulip Singh. Who was yes. Another forgotten, forgotten suffragette. But there were so many. The thing is, everyone remembers the Pankhurst, but mm-hmm. there were so many women who sacrificed so much. Yeah. Essentially, I mean, Constance could have had a very easy life of privilege. She could have married who her parents wanted her to, lived very happily, probably a lot longer um, in ridiculous wealth and she made a decision to turn around and say no do you know what i want my life to mean something yeah and that that should always be applauded yeah and there's actually i mean if you you can you can google her there's photos of her dressed up as jane walton um sort of doing her protesting um which we're kind of getting into that age where photography is more common so we can see these people that we're talking about. Um, yeah, it doesn't take twenty minutes to expose the shot. That's pretty good. Yeah. So I was wondering why why the name you gave me was was sort of jangling in my memory. I actually got married in a village called Wharton, so oh. I, I'm I'm more pleasantly disposed towards her based on that as well <laughs> as everything she did. Was it a suffragette life. wedding? Was there explosions? Well, uh, <laughs> no. 
I mean, my wife threw threw me over her shoulder and walked off with me like a caveman. So, it, you know, women power. Yeah. Fevler women. Yeah. Fevler women. Well, I don't want to move on from Constance. I want her to have a good ending. It's just so sad that she died so young when she was, she was on the side of right. And she had no reason to be. She was privileged. She could have just rolled with it and had a great life. Yeah. Uh, but we are discussing this amazing woman now. And mm-hmm. she, yeah, she could have she could have had a good life. And she could have um, sort of settled down. Um, it looks like I'm just sort of doing a quick scan... Um, and it looks like she was uh, she was protesting all across the country because she was imprisoned in Newcastle, London, Liverpool. Um, yeah, so she was she was sort of a travelling um, suffragette, <laughs> agitator. Yeah, yeah, basically. Um, I love her even more. Yeah, so she was she was there. She was she was at the forefront and of. It's, it's the thing you always say about well would you have done the same thing in the same situation? And I think, actually, in her situation, that was the hardest path to take. She didn't have to. She would have been ostracised from her family for doing that. She would have made a conscious decision to say, actually... Make her life as hard as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, And, yeah, like she didn't have to. She could have been... I mean, she was she was only, she was the she was the third child. I so see her safely in the middle of the pack. She could have just gone away into obscurity and just mm, yeah got a nice a plum match. It's it's actually more impressive that she did it as a middle child than anything else because geez yeah she could have had the easy life and she chose such a hard life, but yeah. for a good reason. I like Constance. Yeah, Constance don't, is wicked. Don't tell me there's another one. No. Don't tell no. me you've got another terrible one. No, 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 no. I've stopped at Constance to to leave it on oh. a good on a good sort of inning, but um, that's the right place. So she also um, sort of after the outbreak of war and the the kind of the suffragette movement kind of sort of stopped because everyone kind of was like, right, okay. We need to sort of work together now. But whilst the war was going on, she sort of gave her support and resources and money to um, establish birth control like clinics. So she was also pioneering in that sort of area as well, um, which was incredible. So, so, so it didn't it didn't just stop with her suffragette work. She actually sort of used them t- that time between 1918 and 19... Um, 14 to 18. That's it. <laughs> I, kn- I knew I'd got that wrong. Um, 14 <laughs> to 18. Um, uh, so she used that time wisely to sort of invest her money and stuff into um, science. So, amazing. Good for her because, I mean... That was that was the big thing for for women. Just, I mean, it's, it goes on to this day, but the idea that you 
you don't have control over your own body mm. and you don't have the right to decide what happens with your own body and she's already fought a fight that's you know essentially killed her in terms of what she's had to go through and then she picks what was at the time an even more difficult fight to win i really like constance yeah we love you constance she, she, she's a good litten she is a good litten uh, uh, from from a lot of bad eggs there was a good one um uh, the Lytton family still live at Nebworth. I don't know what they're like. I'm sure they're nice people. Um, they've opened up their home to to visitors. Um, uh, and it's literally down the road from me. So I'm, I'm about two miles away from this house. Um, not far at all. So, two miles? Yeah, I'm not far. Yeah, I... Uh, yeah, live very close. I mean, sorry, go on. I act so shocked, but you know, I see Lancaster Castle when I walk out my front door. So, oh, that's incredible. That is the thing about England, isn't it? You, wherever you live, you're just so close to history because mm, there's so matter. much of it. Um, and even if you live in the newest of new estates, you can um, be assured that something dramatic probably happened on that land um <laughs> like a, a a battle or that maybe there was a village there at some point or um yeah. uh or it was named after an area that that sort of came before it so yeah that's that's kind of why i love history especially in our country because we have so much of it yeah i think that's the great thing about living in england is just that we've had so much that now it doesn't matter what you're not too far away from it no there's i mean there's a parish in church local area yeah there's a parish church uh which takes me like two minutes to walk to and um it's in the doomsday book like it's do you know what i mean it was it was there hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago and it's still there and i can walk out my house and be there <laughs> <laughs> like it's it's mad um it's so close i mean i've recently learned that there's a little village just about a mile away from where i live hesham and there's a little chapel and it's apparently where st patrick of irish snake fame mm. uh he landed in england before he went over to ireland mm, that's it's a mile interesting. from my house yeah isn't that's... it i mean and you just think it happens all the time. There's a Roman baths up the road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's not unusual in England. No, absolutely. You just go, oh, absolutely. So the um, the A1, which I spoke of earlier, which Nebworth House kind of mm. runs off of, is the old Great North Road, which the Romans built. It's the same road. <laughs> it's just been what widened. Street, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, Watland Street was a separate street. Um, Is that the A2? So Watland Street went across from Canterbury up um, towards sort of uh, Wales, like that way. Um, and the A1 went from um, London, now goes all the way up to Edinburgh, but it kind of went up to Newcastle when the... Mm. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it's, it's the same road that the Romans used. It's been diverted slightly at points, but not much. And that's why it's so straight. 
Like, it's such a straight road. All those Romans, they knew how to build a straight road, didn't they? They did indeed. But they could never conquer Scotland, could they? They got to that wall and they were like, nope, (laughs) we are not going any further. We are done here. I hope you've enjoyed that. It was sort of a different tone to to the episode that we did for for, for yours. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm in love with Constance and everyone should look I think look you ended up. on the right litten, definitely. Yeah. She's, yeah. she's the one that you can get behind. Yeah, but yeah, absolutely. The entire thing about the suffragette movement, every single one, it's, it's great an entire group of people go, I'm going to trash my own reputation. Mm-hmm. I'm going to totally go against everything that my family stands for because most of them were posh aristocracy women. And especially when they class... to do it. Class and reputation meant everything. Like, you could be ruined for, like, sort of exposing a shoulder or too much ankle, like, for life. And people were willing to, like, blow shit up because oh so so easily and so quickly yeah especially in england mm. yeah we we remain repressed so much longer than the rest of europe mhm it's it that body of water thing. that sort of sits around us it kind of cuts us off the thing about this story that i really love is constance had generations of people who were properly you know all in on the full I'm going to be part of the establishment I'm going to be part of the people who get the money and even despite of all of that she went, do you know what? No <laughs> No <laughs> It's yeah. I love it when you get their moments in history so um, there's this really cool t-shirt um, that uh, sort of we're fast forwarding to a different period of time, but it's got uh, it just says Rosa Parks, and it's got in quote quotation <laughs> quotation marks no <laughs> on it. Like someone's asked her to move, and she's like, no, <laughs> not doing it. <laughs> Something so simple. It's depressing bit about that is it, it's 1954. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's like 1954. No, of I course know. no. I know. Jesus Christ. It's 1954. It's I saw um, oh, a thing on I social will media. Never for the life of me understand that. Yeah. I saw a thing on social yeah. media um, of um, Martin Luther King Jr. and Anne Frank. And they were born in the same year. And yet yeah. you see them as very different time periods, don't you? Well, I do anyway. I don't. You don't put them together, do you? Like they were the same age or would have been the same age. Um, obviously, Martin Luther King Jr. lived longer. Um, <laughs> Just. Yeah. My wife has been to the play, the motel where he was shot. Oh, really? Okay. She went there. The thing about Martin Luther King Jr., he was so less radical. He was... It's like if, if America had any kind of conscience, they'd have gone... This is someone we can get behind. He's not Malcolm X. He's not someone who's... Oh, Malcolm X was militant, around. wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. It was like Martin Luther King in today's age would be, oh, yeah, we can we can fluff him up. We can make him part of the establishment. He's great. And they couldn't yeah. even accept him at no. the time. It's just insane to me. Yeah. It is. Um, it's that whole thing of divide and conquer, isn't it? A lot of people want 
people to hate each other. Um, because it's easier that way. But anyway, I try not to get political on this podcast, but I can't <laughs> help it sometimes. Um, every, no, no one seemed to been like be aggressive towards me yet, so it's fine. <laughs> um, although I've just told everyone I live like two miles away from Nelworth House, so they're going to come and fight me now. That's that's a that's a lot of houses. I think you're okay. Yeah, I think I'll be Sounds fine. Like as long as you don't get the postcode, you'll be right. So my street is called <laughs> uh, Constance Road. It's not. There is, uh, so in Stevenage, there is, so sort of the main road is called Lytton Road, Lytton Street. Um, and there's a lot of pubs sort of named after the Lytton family as well. Just... So I've really enjoyed that. That's been, it's been good. 